1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Schult and I co-host the channel with Kevin Lindsay. Like the transdiscipline of cybernetics, the philosophical movement known as existentialism rose to prominence in the decade following World War II, was communicated to the general public by a handful of charismatic evangelizers, who for a time became bona fide celebrities in popular culture. "...generated much excitement and innovation on university campuses across Europe, the Americas, and beyond, and in subsequent decades seemed to fade to the periphery of intellectual discourse, with some declaring both movements dead, and others keeping the faith in small circles of committed artists, scholars, and practitioners." Along the way, both movements have found some of their strongest expression through works of art, from the plays and novels of some of existentialism's key players to the 1968 Cybernetic Serendipity Exhibition that toured America after its original incarnation at the Institute for Contemporary Arts in London. In the early decades of the 21st century, well into the so called Information Age, and at a historical moment fraught with new and amplified ethical challenges, both fields seem to many to be poised for a comeback. One such observer is Steve Dixon, whose monograph, Cybernetic Existentialism, Freedom, Systems, and Being for Others in Contemporary Arts and Performance, out from Rutledge in 2020, not only explores the often surprising conceptual overlaps between the two fields, but manages to offer nothing less than an original aesthetic theory, fusing perspectives from the philosophy of existentialism with insights from the universal science of cybernetics, to provide a new analytical lens and deconstructive methodology to critique art. In this study, Steve Dixon examines how a range of cutting-edge contemporary artists' works embody core ideas from such existential philosophers as Soren Kierkegaard, Albert Camus, Simone de Beauvoir, and Jean-Paul Sartre on freedom, being, and nothingness, eternal recurrence, the absurd, and being for others, while simultaneously engaging in complex explorations of concepts proposed by such cyberneticians as Norbert Wiener, Claude Shannon, and Gregory Bateson on information theory and noise feedback loops, circularity, adaptive ecosystems, autopoiesis, and emergence. Dixon's groundbreaking work demonstrates how fusing insights and knowledge from these two fields can throw new light on pressing issues with contemporary arts and culture, including authenticity, angst and alienation, homeostasis, radical politics, and the human-as-system. Join me now as Dixon, in his own words, talks for England in an energetic romp across these complex, overlapping intellectual and aesthetic landscapes. Steve Dixon, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It's such a pleasure to have you here to talk about this fascinating new book.
0: Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Thank yeah. you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So... um we're going to start with our traditional first question, and I imagine this answer will be quite a bit different from some of the others we've heard answering this question on this channel. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about your artistic slash academic intellectual trajectory um, and how it took you to an engagement with uh, cybernetics?
0: Okay. Well, I've always been fascinated by, uh, by technology uh, in the arts. Uh, and 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 performance. I have a performance background and did drama degree and so on. Uh, but technology and arts always fascinated me. Since 1994, I've been the director of multi a multimedia theatre company called uh, the the Chameleons Group. We create performances in lots of different forms and platforms using technology. So we do live multimedia theatre incorporating giant screens. Uh, I used to make CD-ROMs back in the day, now sadly obsolete and largely unplayable. Uh, we did interactive internet performers performances and improvising spontaneously to audiences' suggestions. Uh, I've used blue screen installations, compositing remote actors and audience participants together in a shared virtual environment. And most recently, I've done a load of live VR theatre performances uh, for audiences of one at a time. And in parallel to that, uh, throughout my academic sort of career since 1990, I've been researching the use of technology in arts. Uh, I co-founded the Digital Performance Archive, which was a UK big uh, funded research project around the turn of the millennium. This recorded and archived for posterity the pioneering work going on at that time. So arising from that uh, came a book, Digital Performance, uh, that i wrote presenting a history of new media in theater dance performance arts and installation uh, that was published by MIT press in 2007 and it's 800 pages long and remains kind of the most comprehensive study uh, it is an authoritative
1: book on the field i i must say that it is a very much an authoritative book on the field and is and is uh, been very important for a lot of us so i just want to acknowledge that along the way sorry to interrupt but i did want to put in another plug for that book too because it yeah, is no, really a, it really is an authoritative yeah. text in the field
0: you're most kind. Thank you very much, and, and I'm delighted that that people continue to write to to write to me. Uh, you know, uh, researchers and students saying, "Oh, you know, uh, can you tell me a bit about about this?" So it, it's great that it that uh, it had had longevity and so on. So that's so that's really nice. But I've always been fascinated by cybernetics, and as a child and under teenager i really got into it uh, i was a very sort of deep thinking child i think i've got less deep thinking with age but but uh, you know i was kind of really looking at it and fascinated by that i think i think i sort of um i forgot about it for a while and I, th- I think the world sort of forgot got about, about it for a little for a little while i think it, because it really it you know it hit big in the 60s when i was a kind of child and uh, and, and teenager and then sort of post 70s i think as – as times changed and things went a little bit more conservative and so on, uh, the, you know, the, the kind of discourse got a bit, a bit lost. But I think it's really re-emerging at the moment, which I think is, is a fantastic thing. Uh, but as I started to do that research on digital performance, and I was talking to lots of artists and interviewing them, uh, they started to talk about cybernetics, and many were very explicit about, about cybernetic processes and so on. And I'd always engaged with it, so I started to read more, and I got back, you know, back into you know, re- re- uh, reading Wiener and, and Shannon and, uh, and all, all of this. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I really started to become more and more fascinated, and, and that's really continued over the last 10, 15 years. So and people like Stellark, the Australian performance artist, um, he, who be- <laughs> has become a good friend and was a colleague of mine at Brunel University, uh, he's he's very explicit about the use of cybernetics and <clears throat> very knowledgeable, of course. So I learned a lot from him. Uh, and, and I've written a lot about his work. And I think, so the, my book is called Cybernetic Existentialism uh, that I've just published. And, and it's looking at cybernetics and existentialism uh, as, as a way that, that artists are working with both of these ideas. Now, I think Stellark is a quintessential cybernetic existentialist. Um, so he's taken the core element and medium of his art form, performance art, the physical self, and he's really used the language and, and techniques of cybernetics and put it onto his body and through as robotic appendages and custom-made exoskeleton systems and so on. And, he, and he's also <clears throat> had his body controlled and jerked around cybernetically and involuntary uh, with remote audiences online sending electric shocks to different limbs to make him kind of dance. A so really amazing. Uh, performances using these cybernetic systems. But he's also imbricated the systems into his body. So he has, uh, for example, robotic stomach sculptures that he ingests and then uses miniature medical cameras to trace uh, the trajectories inside his body. And then he's had lengthy medical interventions to have a third ear constructed on his forearm that will be internet, internet activated. So He's, you know, he's a true cybernetician and a visionary, uh, but at the same time, he's also fearless, as fearless and uncompromising as any existentialist, and he mm. really kind of has an existentialist philosophy, a fierce commitment to progressive self-creation, that's a big existentialist theme, and going beyond beyond his limits. So getting to know Stellart when I first started to formulate ideas uh, really was for when I first started to formulate ideas of, of how artists often fuse perspectives from cybernetics and existentialism simultaneously. So it's quite a big uh, thing, to, thing to look at and a big theory <coughs> that, that I've, that I've that I've that I've come come up come up with, but as I started, you know, the more kind of artworks I saw in gallery gallery spaces, more performance and theatre, uh, I, I saw the more I could see these themes themes coming coming together, and mm-hmm. cybernetics really reemerging, and existentialism reemerging. So, Stellart, for example, conceives his body as an evolutionary cybernetic system, and and more and more artists kind of you know see this. This kind of discourse explicitly, and he emphasises that the human condition isn't fixed; it's a constantly metamorphosing one. Now, actually, if you read, if you read existentialism, and I've reread it uh, extensively as we search for the book, it says exactly the same thing. You know, we are changing; we must uh, keep keep moving, self creating, you know, uh, evolving uh, ideas of emergence and so on. So, anyway, one of my book's aims is to draw out these similarities uh, and correspondences and I can I can talk uh, a bit more about that
1: yeah that's great. What a what a great uh, what a great introduction. And of course, you know, for me personally, as a theater maker who's been um, found himself down the cybernetic uh, rabbit hole, of beginning a few years ago, into where I am now. Uh, this book is just such a cornucopia of delights, and uh, as as is the opportunity to talk to you about it. So, can you um, let's just jump right into it? You you wrote this book to put forward uh, nothing less than a new theory in a sense of art, and perhaps more than just art. But uh, a theory and a new analy- you call it a theory and a new analytical method of cybernetic existentialism. So, why don't we just jump right into it and uh, ask you to lay out uh, some of the the core principles or the the general framework of this theory and analytical method that you're proposing uh, across this book?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, my central thesis is that many of the world's most important contemporary artists are—and this is whether consciously or unconsciously—drawing upon the ideas and themes. Of the two distinct but interrelated disciplines of cybernetics and existentialist philosophy. And I discuss around 50 artists as case studies that demonstrate how this operates in different ways, and I draw out different themes from cybernetics and existentialism as I do so. Uh, And many of the artists, it's not just sort of fringe artists or just media artists or or robotic artists, Uh, it's many of the most innovative and influential artists of our time. Okay? So some of the artists I discuss. Uh, are technological artists using interactive technologies or biotech or robotics? And there, the use of cybernetic systems is perhaps the most clear uh, and overt. Okay, but actually, a majority of my examples come from non-technological arts, from visual arts and conceptual art. So, for example, uh, I make a case for the ideas of cybernetics and existentialism being simultaneously present in one of the most sort of analogue but also iconic artworks of the 1950s. So if you know um, the erased de Kooning drawing, 1953, of Robert Rauschenberg, mm-hmm. um, <coughs> Rauschenberg famously took a pencil uh, a pencil and graphite and ink drawing by you know, the very famous at the, the time, Willem de Kooning. He turned up on de Kooning's doorstep and asked him for it, and he was unknown, Rauschenberg. Uh, de Kooning was really famous, but it, he convinced him to get to give him a, a drawing that he would erase. He spent two months and many erasers to rub it out. And you know, and the final piece, it has smudges and faint uh, mysterious marks remaining, but it caused a sensation when it was first exhibited, partly because it seemed an, an act of aesthetic vandalism. It's a pure conceptual piece of kind of vandalism. But I argue that Rauschenberg's process was uh, the operation of a classic negative feedback loop. He attempts to return the piece of paper to its original state, and a point of homeostasis. So these are all key uh, uh, cybernetic concerns, and to apply processes towards what cyberneticians called negative entropy, bringing back order to things that are disordered or chaotic. So you know, I, I kind of discuss it, and you know, I'm taking a obviously. Uh, a particular analytical take on it through Simonade, but I think you know it, it's a justifiable position. But at the same time, the piece resonates with all the vibrations of existentialism. So it conjures ideas and it poses questions about rebellion, authenticity. These are key tenets of uh, existentialism: the absurd, the uncanny, canny. identity as a, a fluid and uncertain process, no palimpsest type process, ideas of absence and presence with the existentialists we're obsessed with, and nothingness's relationship to being. okay, And being and nothingness is the, the key text by Jean-Paul Sartre. Really, In discussing the work, Rauschenberg actually echoed, I think, both the existentialist viewpoint that apprehending nothingness isn't nihilistic, it's actually psychologically positive, Andy echoed the cybernetician's viewpoint that negative feedback loops, quests for returns, and self-regulating homeostatic processes are actually progressive and indeed the, the Holy Grail. He said, and I quote Rauschenberg, it's not a negation, it's a celebration. Okay? Now, I also look at some classic artworks from the mid-20th century, like, like that one, and compare them with recent artworks. So, for example, uh, you may know the wonderful little wooden box about the size of a, uh, a cigar box <coughs> with a, an on-off toggle switch from 1952 made by Claude Shannon, the originator of information theory. Okay, you, you, uh, and he made various versions. You click, uh, I've seen it in loads of, of different galleries, actually. You, switch, uh, you click the switch to on, and the box begins to buzz ominously. Then a lid opens, and a mysterious metal hand emerges and physically pushes the switch back to off. It then retreats back into the box. Okay, it's a great piece. It's a wonderful Mm -hmm. piece. And there's lots of online online video if you don't know it. Anyway, when sci-fi writer Arthur C. Clarke saw it, he noted that the lid then snaps shut with the finality of a coffin lid, as he put it. And he said there was something unspeakably sinister about a machine that does nothing, absolutely nothing, except switch itself off. Now, what Shannon called his ultimate machine performs another classic negative feedback loop and the purest and simplest of cybernetic tasks. It responds to an input on by turning it off. But as Arthur C. Clarke made clear, the effect is devastating since it offers a human mortality parable. Now, Shannon's zero or one binary is used to equal effect, I argue, in British artist Martin's, Martin Creed's work number 227, The Lights Going On and Off. <clears throat> and, I mean, because I'm British, I, kn- I know it well. It won, the, uh, it won the the Turner Prize, but it was uh, a kind of absurdist piece. The, it, well, the Lights Going On and Off is the matter-of-fact title. It tells it all. Within an empty gallery space, the lighting alternates between on and off in five-second intervals. Now, the fact it won the coveted Turner Prize, it was in the year 2000, it's indicative of its conceptual panache and effrontery, but perhaps equally of its currency. And in the book, I argue that it captured a millennium turn zeitgeist that was suddenly reconsidering the significance of what Jean-Paul Sartre called in his famous book, being a nothingness. Like Shannon's, Creed is a simple proto-Dadaist work, but it opens up large and metaphysical ideas. In both works, this circular causality and a simple feedback loop moves on to off. But in doing so, happiness and anxiety and life and and death are all compressed within one single gesture. Now, I, I show how many famous artists use similar paradigms. For example, exploring themes of mortality by using cybernetic systems, and lots of artists do this. In doing so, they encapsulate ideas of what existentialists term, and it's a very important uh, concept for them, being towards death. Being towards death is hy- hyphenated. Now, this relates to an advocacy that we should all seriously contemplate our own personal deaths, okay? And it's personal. You're going to die, I'm going to die. It's not just the fact that everyone dies. And by doing this, they say, it acts as a wake-up call for us to really think, I, I need to make some important choices in my life and to live my life meaningfully and authentically, okay? So that's it in a nu- nutshell. It's a little more complicated. But so if we take the work of Damien Hurst, for example, we can see these themes very vividly from his shark suspended in formaldehyde to his large glass box full of flies entitled A Thousand Years. So I look at that as a case study. (coughs) Inside this big glass box is a bloody severed cow's head, and it's rotting on the floor. It produces maggots, and these hatch into flies, and these fly around and are killed by an insecticutor hanging above the cow's head. And there are thousands of flies in this huge box. Now, (coughs) Hurst works like a cybernetician, to create an aesthetic world, and it's thoroughly systematized and rationalized. The system is classically cybernetic in that it combines elements from and crosses boundaries between the organic and the machining, and it involves a dynamic cycle of evolutions and feedback loops. Now, though it's distinctly low-tech or no-tech, for me, it's a perfect example of what I call cybernetic existentialist art. So it's an evolving, circuitry system, and it's a self-regulating organism. Its theme and materials confront us not only with a vivid and visceral representation, but it's actually an authentic performance, an authentic in terms of the existentialist desire for, for absolute truth and authenticity, of what the existentialists also see as a brief, absurd, and apparently meaningless cycle of life and death. Now, this really elicits, I think, an aesthetic horror. When I saw it, it's like, what is this? You know? And there is, you get real angst, uh, you know, existential angst, in the inexorable face of death. Now, as I said, the existentialist view is that the ultimate effect of, of kind of confronting us with mortality and death and so on, you know, kind of in a very visceral way like Hearst does there, the effect of this is actually positive because it's, it, it's affirmative and awakening. Now, Hearst, interestingly, echoes the perspective. I was reading about what he uh, says about it in his discussion of the way He says, and I'll quote, uh, you can frighten people with death or an idea of their own mortality, or it can actually give them vigor. So that's really the kind of existentialist take on it. And it's fascinating how, you know, I was discovering all, all this during the research.
1: Yeah, I just want to break in and please continue. I just wanted to break in and say that I found that particular work in your description of it so obviously arresting in its in its grotesqueness, but but it's also profound and and the fact that you have you know insisted, you know, the stellarks of the world are the most obvious kinds of existential artists. Uh sorry, as cybernetic artists, but but this uh, the the circularity of of that process of this, you know, grotesquely organic process taking place, uh, the way that, that it's instantiated there is just to me, so such an important and rich part of what you're talking about that this isn't, you know, one of the first things when I first started to teach uh, something about cybernetics to students of mine, I made a PowerPoint that was called not about robots because I wanted to make clear that this was about so much more. So uh, the inclusion of it's just so important to this book. I think that, 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 um, this isn't just about, quote unquote technological artists uh, and that that's such a vivid uh, and visceral sort of a, a prime example yeah
0: no absolutely yeah. and I think um, in some ways very pur- purposefully I um, I keep the technological artists the robotic artists the you know me- and media art doesn't really feature uh, particularly significantly because they are by, by nature if you like s- uh, s- cybernetic and it didn't really, and because I focused so much on that in pre- previous books and publications. I actually wanted to look more at kind of, um, you know, general contemporary art that was non-technological. So actually, there's only really one chapter in the book that is looking at, you know, at at very technological art. And that's really looking at uh, performance artists using technologies to uh, what I I term actualize science fiction. So in that chapter, I'm arguing that there is an actualization of science fiction that artists like Edward Wado Catch and, and Stellark and, uh, and others actually make happen and, and Orlan and, and, and so on. But I've really, I've really kept it to more kind of, you know, standard you know, people like Anish, Anish Kapoor and, uh, and various art, artists like, like that, but some, some very, very important artists who are completely non-technological and using analog, but, but social cybernetic, different types of, of cybernetic systems within the works. So, uh, I mean, I, I think I've, I've, through all the, ca- the case studies, I really built up a discourse that I think does, tries to do a number of things. So firstly, it's interrelating the ideas and themes of cybernetics and existentialism and uh, the study of those comparisons and complementarities I build progressively through the book and then finishing the conclusion. Secondly, I try to make a case for a revival of cybernetics and existentialism in academic and cultural thinking. I mean, they've kind of faded a little from view, but I think they're coming back. And I, I actually believe there is increasing relevance and importance and things like I talked about authenticity um, in, in existentialism 20 years ago. Everyone laughed at the idea of authenticity. We weren't oh, even yeah. in the postmodern world. Very sort of Outre
1: in the yeah. postmodern oh, world, oh, for sure.
0: such thing as truth and authenticity. Well, I think, and, and actually, interestingly with Donald Trump, <laughs> Trump at the moment, I mean, I mean, the uh, academics have called the 2016 election the authenticity election, and that actually that was the magic election ingredient. Whether you like him or not, he had authenticity that, that actually got him there. And now, kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> as, we, as we speak, in 20, 2020 uh you know p- post the election uh, his kind of authenticity and or lack of it is is very stark so um but but i think you know and i say in the book authenticity has now become the new necessity everyone wants authenticity that's the big thing whether it's in relationship in leadership management you see authenticity we see the word everywhere whereas it used to be sort of derided so Anyway, I argue that contrary to popular opinion, cybernetics and existentialism aren't fields that are outdated or outmoded or defunct. They're alive and well and actually making a dramatic comeback. So my provocation, if you like, of cybernetic existentialism as a theory hopefully adds to that recent resuscitation of interest in both fields and to their re-evaluation. And I think you can see this reflected in so many excellent books that have been published uh, recently. Which you know re-examine uh, their their history, their you know their history and, and ideas. I think uh, Ronald Klein's cybernetics moment, uh, Thomas Ridges Rise of the Machines, Lost History of Cybernetics. And I think Andrew Pick- Pickering's wonderful cybernetic. And there are lots of other examples. And, and the same is, is true of of uh, existentialism. Some fantastic books. If, um, <clears throat> the, the the one I'd really uh, <clears throat> recommend is uh, Sarah Bakewell's scintillating study called At the, the Existentialist Cafe. Uh, at the Existentialist Cafe is a tremendous book that gives you the real kind of history and introduces to all the you know, the, the amazing characters uh, of, of, of existentialism. So um, I think while much is said about what is new in arts and culture, it's just interesting to reflect on what came before and prompted it, like cybernetics and existentialism, how the seemingly new commonly harks back to and reanimates the old. And then we know that, you know, researchers and historians know that looking back can teach us a lot, and the, the past is, is rarely passe. It actually has a lot to tell us about the present and the future. Oh, and, and, then, and then, sorry, thirdly, uh, and most fundamentally, as you said at, at the beginning, the book's really providing a new critical lens and a methodology with which to examine artworks. So, and the method is using hybrid conceptual frames of the two epistemologies and their vocabularies. And I argue that using those and peering through the bifocal lenses of cybernetics and existentialism actually opens up really important novel and illuminating insights into contemporary arts and culture. And I'm I'm also doing case studies of things like let it go from, Disney's Frozen which I think is a very interesting example of cybernetic existentialism. Uh,
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: And one that you can see, hum
1: on the way to, on the way home from the absolutely. movie theater as well. Yeah, well I <laughs> I think that I mean the the we'll get to the list of 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 the of the terminology in a moment and and how they inform each other. I found the stuff around being for others particularly um engaging and illuminating um around some of the second-order cybernetics discussions of ethics and relationships with others. I think of there's a very famous paper by Hans von, Heinz von Furster called Heinz, Sorry Heinz von Furster called uh, Through the Eyes of the Other," and um, how he says that in language, it, it, it's it kind of touches on. It's not quite a rebuke of the postmoderns, but but it says you know in language, of course, you know we begin to be able to be self-reflective. Uh, and that's consciousness. But it is through our relationship with others where language really has its use that he says is the birth of conscience. And that distinction between the two really resonated with me in terms of the, the notion of, of being for others. So whether you want to start there or start somewhere else in the list, can you take us through, um, you know, as much as you feel comfortable getting into right now, the, 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 the ter- how the terminologies meet between these two fields?
0: Okay, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's. I I can talk forever. Talk for England as this. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, if we look at being for others, I think it, it's a really really crucial uh, part of existentialism. I think because existentialism um, is to do with the kind of absolute autonomy and freedom of the individual. And all of that. Um, existentialists were the first to, to kind of note, and a number of them were quick, very Christian existentialists like Gabriel Marcel and uh, um, Kierkegaard and so on. Others were fierce a- atheists like, like Sartre, but, but they, they all recognize if we say, okay, you have absolute freedom and so on, unless you care for others and have real em- empathy, you can become a monster. Okay, and you can take advantage of others. Um, so this being for others, uh, and people like Gabriel Marcel, who again was a was a uh, was a Christian, but, but also worked for many years for the for the Red Cross, um, uh, working in in, for, first, uh, in the First World War and and looking after very relatives and so on. You know, really was sort of saying you need to devote yourself to others, and then you will have a much more meaningful life. And I think uh, so, it, it was really it, being for others in existentialism with a, taking a noble position of giving to others rather than taking. And, and Sartre has this wonderful uh, piece. He, he has he, he, 200 pages of the book, uh, Being a Nothingness, uh, is a section called Being for Others. <coughs> and, and, and Sartre kind of opens it quite dramatically he, and saying, I quote, if I can remember, I am for others. The other is revealed to me as the subject for whom I I'm an object. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a complete reversal of you know you are the dominant one. No, others are dominant, and, and you know work work through through that. And I think yeah, the Ron Forster and, and Second Wave Cybernetics and so on is actually you know, and I talk a lot about the book. Is working exactly uh, is exactly the the, uh, the the same the same way. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I'll sort of come to it. Um, sure. I, I think <clears throat> so. Yeah. I mean, what I've done really. Uh, in terms of exploring the complementary ideas and vocabularies and the intersecting th- themes um, the, is really to show just how much they sh- the two epistemologies share, share in common and how much. So I'll just go through these and I'll take some notes. So, uh, so both advocate openness, interactivity, experimentation, boundary crossing, adaptation, evolution, becoming, and synthesis. And they also share surprisingly close histories. They have parallel trajectories of their dawns and highlights and twilights and declines. So ber- both emerge as distinct disciplines following key books in, ni- in the 1940s, Jean-Paul Sartre's Being and Nothingness, and Norbert Wiener's Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the animal. Uh, of, and the machine. So they were 1943 with Sartre, 1948 uh, with Wiener. So they both matured and grew to prominence in the 1950s, and they achieved considerable fame uh, and popularity in the 1960s. They were huge, and then mm-hmm. suddenly their fames and their, their flames gradually diminished as other sort of concerns took over. Okay, but significantly, both attracted not only specialist and academic interest but widespread. Public attention and popularity. And this was not least because of their so called leaders, um, uh, Sartre and and Wiener. They were such larger than life incredible personalities. And and Wiener became a household name in the United States and beyond. Cybernetics at the time was seen as a type of magic key to unlock the scientific future. This was where, you know, the the moon landings and, and everything was sort of seemed to be arising out of cybernetics at the time. Now, Sartre was a similarly hugely famous public celebrity. He was also infamous as a hard-drinking, free-thinking, radical, free-loving individual, who had this long, you know, lifetime mm. open relationship with Simone de Beauvoir, where they were both <laughs> just sleeping with um, lots and lots of people and they were taking drugs. You know, there was very, very sort of wild, mm. um, <coughs> wild times. And the kind of, uh, the you know, in the 1968 uh, Paris um, you know, stu- students sort of upri- uprising. You know, there was Sartre on a soap soapbox, and uh, you know, pre- pre- you know preaching revolution and so on. So, mm-hmm. and and I think, and both uh, Wiener and Sartre were politically aligned to the far left. And I spend quite a, a big section in the book looking at politics uh, of uh, of cyberneticians and existentialists and how complementary they are, including you know anarchist convictions as well. So the kind of quite a- extreme um, political views. Now Andrew Pickett, Pickering has suggested that uh, cybernetics, we should see it more as a form of life and a way of going on it in the world, and even, as he says, an attitude. And I think, I think it's the same with existentialism. The, 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 the same principles are applied. In existentialism, more than any other philosophy, it's a way of life, it's a way of being in the world, and, and concrete action and lived experience is everything. And Sarah Bakewell, I uh, uh, referenced on her uh, um, Existentialist Café book, she talks about all existentialism being applied existentialism. And Sartre and, uh, and De Beauvoir exemplified that. They lived that life. Mm-hmm. Now, both are strongly ideological movements in that way, and they're both quite didactic about ways of seeing things, doing things, and of living. Now I therefore equate them, and some people may not not like this. But as I get towards the conclusion, I start to say, "Hey, they were like types of religions or even cults, mm-hmm. and typically their advocates are so intense, passionate individuals filled with an evangelical zeal about the philosophies and the teachings of their fields."
1: I can assure you, as as the vice president elect for the American Society for Cybernetics, I can assure you that his spirit is alive and well at all of our conferences.
0: <laughs> and having yeah, and having presented with with you at the most recent one, you know, it was great to see, and it. it was just 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 fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the the energy and all that. But I did worry when I wrote that that. <laughs> that that you know, cybernetician colleagues may be going, oh hey, don't go too far. It's not really a cult, it's, but anyway. it's,
1: it's something we we recognize that it can uh, it can seem that way to others, and uh, but there's no doubt that cyberneticians feel feel the work very very strongly. I think you're saying something that's actually really really pertinent, very accurate.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. <clears throat> okay, so uh, just, uh, I'll carry on with you, just kind of, um, yeah. and as I say, I can talk for it for in, in England on this because because no, I, 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 I This is great. So Keep many, taking so us through
1: ideas. this the, the parallel terminology. Yeah. This is fantastic.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> okay. So both uh, are meta disciplines. Okay. They they're both kinda all encompassing and they share a total lack of recognition of boundaries and substrates. There's a determination to cross, overcome and transcend them. Again, talking of religion, if you like, they're, they're both visionary and transcendent disciplines. We, you know, it's taking a kind of broad Catholic, um, <laughs> that's a bit specific, Catholic view of transcendence. So anyway, the, the last section of Sartre's Being and Nothingness is actually entitled Transcendence. But it relates, it's not really about kind of reaching nirvana, if you like. It's about... Um, uh, Overcoming facticity, overcoming the the everyday, and going beyond the uh, the everyday, and going beyond being sort of you know one in the crowd and just conforming and all of that. So it's transcending, uh, being a non-conformist and so on. Now, one of cybernetics aims is to transcend and overflow the boundaries of physical objects, spreading across multiple uh, entities. uh, You know, mixing the organic and the machinic, and so on. And so. Uh, in cybernetics, uh, so in both cybernetics and existentialism, and I'll, I'll extend that all also recently to post humanism as a kind of discourse and a, a field, we see common themes uh, of devotion to a grand project and movement towards the future, uh, the infinite, and if you like, the transcendent. Okay, so that's another thing I, I brought together. In terms of the common vocabularies, uh, I think there's a, a, also, I won't go into all the word, sort of the words and the, the sort of chart I put at the end of the book. Yeah, but there's a, the, uh, cybernetics and existentialism also share a, a common vocabulary with complexity theory, and I think this is very interesting. So there's, b- both fields are fascinated by the unpredictable behaviours of dynamic systems, and these includes organisations and society and how they adapt, evolve, and grow. In cybernetics, this is relating to circular loops, interactions between the system, and its environment. In existentialism, it applies to how human choices, actions and interactions ultimately uh, determine people's self-identity and thus their freedom. Now, both fields have a keen interest also in the ontology of time. Okay, and uh, you know, again, you know, reading more and more cybernetics, you know, I see Ross Ashby, this great British cyberneticist, called himself a time worshiper, Um, Mm -hmm. and and both movements align themselves with Henry Bergson's notion uh, of time as durée, about duration uh, and flow, rather than a strict linear chronology. Now, both Sartre and Heidegger, another key existentialist. Heidegger's magnum opus, uh, which really inspired being and nothingness of Sartre, was called Being and Time, and he's really saying that all being is about time. Uh, and they were both greatly influenced by Bergson, and so was Norbert Wiener. The first chapter of the cybernetics book is called Newtonian and Bergsonian time, and, uh, nor- and, and Wiener really sort of equates cybernetics with Bergsonian time, just as the existentialists do, and he discusses underlying paragraphs, it's really interesting, uh, paradoxes of the arrow of time both being both reversible and irreversible. And actually, um, Heidegger and, and Wiener had a lot in common, uh, although not politically. <laughs> we, yes, uh, Heidegger actually joined the Nazi party. Um, yes. okay, so, so they, they were politically unaligned, uh, but uh, they had many other commonalities. And I love commonalities and sort of histories and how things come together. So both had wooden huts in the forest that they retreated to to write. Uh, actually, Heidegger, there's a whole book on it. His hut in the forest. It's the mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's the smallest residence ever to have a monograph, but And and so so did did Wiener. And they were both great, obsessive walkers and contemplators of nature. And it's it's really lovely, you know, looking at some of, of their nature imagery. So Heidegger once memorably described the mind and consciousness as a clearing in the forest. It's a really beautiful. Uh, image uh, Wiener once stared into a whirlpool in a stream for hours, and he reflected that since our body cells and tissues regenerate continually, all humans are like whirlpools uh, in a river of ever-flowing water. And he he, he said uh, a, a quote this it said we are not stuff that abides, but patterns that perpetuate themselves. And I use that sort of analogy that he that he he talks about, and this sense of. Uh, a a whirlpool, whirlpool as a, um, you know, a kind of um, o- organic, natural cybernet- cybernetic system in relation to a really wonderful work by Anish Kapoor called Dissension, which is um, a whirlpool of jet black water. He's done it with, with um uh, hair dye—it's so black, and it's kind of this real kind of abyss of nothingness that is both existential, existentialist, but also, uh, you know, a continually uh, evolving, chain, changing vortex, vortex of water, and it's very large, as so sixty meters wide. And again, this is a, a quite uh, monumental uh, piece of, of contemporary contemporary art from uh, about five years ago. Okay, so. I'm also really trying to narrate something of the protagonists uh, and the pioneers of cybernetics and existentialism because they're such extraordinary characters and led, led quite amazing lives. And many are eccentric, non-conformist, charismatic, larger than life. Think of Gordon Pascal, you know, wonderful figure, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it's great, you know, I was watching loads of... Um, and actually he he was uh, at brunel university where i was previously for uh, for for many years before i moved to moved to to singapore and and brunel university used to have, had the last cybernetics de- you know departments and and uh, yeah and the you know colleagues there that you know were 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 involved with that and and really uh, spoke of gordon you know with with such love and love and fondness and and, and of course he was an amazing sort of multimedia artist and a, a real vis- visionary he was also the inspiration uh, i don't know if you know for the tv oh, character doctor who. doctor who
1: absolutely <laughs> the first time i laid eyes on him uh, in a photograph of course i said well that's doctor who not think not knowing that that that, that story actually exists um I don't know has that been conclusively proven or is that apocryphal that he was that he's Doctor Who I've never been able to know for sure but that but was my first reaction I thought it's 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 Patrick Troughton as Doctor Who the uh, the second doctor yeah.
0: I think right. officially. I think officially. Is that right? I, we, we, no, officially, oh. because because we're not post truth. We are. I think it's allegedly, but I think right. enough people people are saying it, no. It, there yeah. is no absolute. There is but no. But he absolute. is he
1: is the personification but, yeah. of Doctor Who in in reality. I mean, there's yeah, no yeah, doubt but, about but, it.
0: But I I don't think it's without without foundation. Uh, but i I don't think it's absolutely conclusive anyway so but but also all these characters were explosive in that we talked about passion and zeal and emotions and arguments but they argued they were continually falling out with each other so you know and this happened in cybernetics actually Wiener's famous quarrel and split with warren mcculloch and again they were politically opposed left and right uh that was for many the the start of the end of uh, of cybernetics Mm because both were such central. Uh, central uh, figures. Uh, And and Sartre, I mean, he had roused and fused with almost all his existentialist colleagues. He fell out with absolutely everyone, including his best friend, Albert Camus. Again, that was about politics. That's because Camus uh, came out as an anarchist, okay? He wrote a book called The Rebel, and said, I am an anarchist. And actually, Russia is screwed, they're putting people in gulags, it's a it's a horror show there. And because Sartre mm-hmm. was a, aligned with communist, Soviet communists, so you can't say that about you know, the Soviets. Maybe they haven't got it all right, but it's not that bad. And and they they split terribly in a terrible row that, that yeah. you know went through Sartre's journal. Anyway, I go into to all these very, very interesting uh, interesting stories. But, but but Camus was was Sartre's best friend. Anyway, um I also look at Wiener's childhood and his fame. He was a child prodigy, the youngest ever American to go to college at the age of 11. He got his PhD at the age of 17. Um, I recount his innovations uh, on predictive anti-aircraft, uh, gun technology during World War II, uh, and discuss this in relation to an artwork by Wafa Bilal, um, which was first called "Shoot an Iraqi during the Gulf War, uh, and, and get the, the name got changed because it was too contentious. But Bil- Bilal, who'd lost a brother, during the Gulf War, who um, was, he was kill, killed there. Uh, he lived for a month in a room in an art gallery, and online players operated a remote control gun, a big gun in the centre of the room that he would just kind of run around and <laughs> he'd sleep there and everything. And they shot hundreds of thousands of paintballs at him. And 80 million people logged on to this performance over its month month duration. Another sort of really fascinating Uh, case study that I I provide provide there. Now, both, okay, I, I won't go into that one, but both disciplines have equal obsessions, as in that work, with the interplays of rigor and randomness, okay? And ontologies of unknowability, emergence and becoming. Now, this stance recognizes that the world can always surprise us and we can never dominate it through knowledge, both cyberneticians and existentialists are therefore concerned with working to adapt performatively to environments they can't fully control. Now, take that performativity from Andrew Pickering's book. He's, you know, the cybernetic brain, which he, he, he writes at length about. Performativity is a key, uh, a key argument for cybernetics. It's also yeah. a key commonality with existentialism because, it's a, you know, all existentialism is applied, performed existentialism. So, and I'll go further than. Calling the two disciplines performative. I think both were virtuosic performances. They were dramatic, okay? And in in the theatrical, Sense. And, and I mean, I think Wiener has come in for criticism because of his hyperbole. He was, so, you know, it's kind of claimed everything, you know, was, was so big. Uh, and they were bombastic performers, charismatic stars. They barnstormed the stage, if you think of, of, of Sartre um, and, and Wiener. And they captured the hearts and minds of, of their audience. This is why they were so famous and, and loved in their day. Now, Wiener and, and Sartre were showmen and they gave hypnotic speeches uh, and, le- and lectures and Wiener, you know, famously would work without notes and would scribble on the blackboard five foot long equation at blistering speed and just mesmerize his audience, and Sartre was the same. Okay, so this kind of performativity, this showmanship, this this love is also reflected in another commonality I talk talk about, uh, a keen interest in arts, aesthetics, drama, literature. Okay, now existentialists Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and Gabriel Marcel were in their day as famous or more famous as novelists and playwrights as they were for philosophy. Also, the theatre of the absurd in the 1950s and 60s, Pinter, uh, Stoppard, uh, Beckett, is seen as an existentialist movement, and actually Samuel Beckett is one absurdist I present, Uh, a case study of um, and comparing him with uh, artist, uh, uh, conceptual artist Francis Elise. Now, meanwhile, in the same decades, uh, 50s and 60s, systems theory exerted a really major influence on the development of conceptual and post-object art. And the, the you know and a whole distinctive field of interactive cybernetic art emerged, you know, including Gordon Gordon Pask, who was you know a, a key practitioner. It reached a climax with the famous se- uh, cybernetic Serendipity exhibition of 1968, and this you know is in all the art history books. Not forget cybernetic. You know, mm-hmm. It was in the art history book. It was a historic turning point where art began to shift its focus significantly away from objects, how it, it's a thing, towards processes. Okay, And cybernetic artists Roy Askar Pask, Namjoon Pike, uh, and Hans Hacker um, you know, were, we're kind of really incredible artists the, the innovators of, of their time. I, I look at hacker's work, I just go through to, I, I won't carry on with too many uh, case studies, but I mean, uh, again, hacker's work in 1965 called Condensation Cube was a really famous uh, piece. This was a hermetically sealed plexiglass cube about one metre square. Again, really simple sort of minimalist artwork. And it had a small amount of water inside, but it's hermetically sealed. And, it's, and the water evaporates and recondenses at different rates. And this depends on the environmental conditions, but also crucially, the movements and um, body heat of the gallery visitors in the space. So as the gallery visitors walk around and more people are in and so on, the, it prompts continuously metamorphosing patterns of vapour droplets and rivulets of water trickling down uh, its internal sides. Again, if you look at its condensation cube uh, online, you know, it's a very simple piece, but very sort of beautiful, ever-changing piece. So it's re- visitor-responsive eco Organic system. Um, I, I then talk about kind of okay. Let's look at a modern equivalent of that. So in in 2017, in what many uh, art critics at the time said was the most important artwork of the of 2017, and it won the the, the huge uh, Nasher Prize. So this was a big piece. It uh, was uh, Pierre a uh, piece called After a Life Ahead, and Huig uh, used a disused ice rink and built geometric panels in the roof and these open and close and it let in the sun and the wind and rain so it's really kind of wild Uh, and this is in a response to a musical score which is computer programmed and (laughs) algorithmically based on the the shell uh, and the movements of a venomous sea snail which is in a large aquarium in the space. So there's all this sort of strange stuff going on where cybernetic systems uh, are, are prompting uh, the, you know, the opening of the roofs and letting it rain and so on. Uh, and then he also dug out and he back, uh, excavated the floor the floor of this ice rink and it becomes a muddy terrain and he put in live peacocks and bees but also an incubator containing human cancer cells okay and this is where the real relationship with hacker's condensation cube comes in so as in condensation cube the activities of the visitors prompt the aesthetic system activity. And the cancer cells in the incubator grow and multiply according to the amount of CO2 uh, they're fed, if you like, by the breathing of the visitors. So the the busier the space, the faster they breathe. And we view this, what happens, spectacular visual real-time representations of the the cellular mutations, and it's all kind of pyramids and strange shapes, uh, through an augmented reality app that we we, we look at in front of it. And so it, it, again, it's a really interesting uh, cybernetic system and when he's discussing the work again again i, I you know quote from interviews with hui he sounds much more like a cybernetician than an artist he's interested in the process and he talks about creating evolving self-organizing systems that try to find a symbiosis and that's a kind of a paraphrase but more or less a quote mm-hmm. so and again it's a classic example of an artist conceiving a responsive and evolving cybernetic system in order to express deep existential concerns and you know, really this is about the fragility of human life, the cancer cells, and also our planet's environment because when it's raining and it's, you know, it, you know when I do I, when I it, it was raining, it's really muddy and going, kind of, whoa, what's going on, you know, uh, really mm. un, an unusual uh, art, artwork. So in, in comparing this with hackers pioneering 1960s cybernetic artwork. I'm trying to really reconnect philosophies and aesthetic processes past and present that are more separated, I think, by discursive fashion than actuality. Most people don't talk about cybernetics in in critiquing art. I'm I'm trying to to prompt them to to start to do so. Mm. And after A Life Ahead, the Huig piece, it reanimates and it just conceptually extends Condensation uh, Cube for a new age and a new audience. But it's the same ideas and processes. I mean, I also talk about Jack Burnham's ideas. So he wrote this this sort of influential article in 1968 called Systems Aesthetics, um, that, uh, talking about uh, art, art not being object-based and material entity, but about relationships between people, people, and the components of, of, of the artwork. And, Hart, and again, it's interesting looking back at what Hacker wrote about his work. And he, he, he talked about wanting exciting, unpredictable Sense of freedom through cybernetic principles, and you recall that existentialism's most sacred tenet is human freedom. This is the big, the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll just kind of uh, tie all tie all this up. Hopefully, not taking too long. I've, I've made some quite a few notes here. I may, may not do it do it all, but um, some more commonalities: heterarchic systems. So, Warren McCulloch in nineteen forty-five coined this term that became very important, heterarchic systems, describing neuronal networks that operate on an equal, non-hierarchical system of, of interaction. OK, so existentialism is also um, very concerned to work through heterarchic systems too, so as to. Uh, and we're going back, Tom, to what you were saying about being for others through this idea of being for others. It's not hierarchically. We call, I am no better than you. Actually, you were always better than me with being for others because, I, you know, I look I look to the other before my, before myself. So it counters ideas of master slave relationships. Uh, and and uh, again both but uh, Simone de Beauvoir and, and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre talk a lot about the master slave uh, re- re- uh, relationship and sadomasochistic Relationships, saying that, that kinda, uh, despite ourselves, we take a position of either kind of uh, master or slave in all the relationships we have. I will be a master to, to, to some people I know and a slave to, slave to others and so on. It's quite interesting. So instead, they, they're promoting a philosophy of get rid of all that ideas. Let's have equality. Let's have heterarchic uh, systems and understand all that so that there is respect for the freedom uh, of everyone, this being for others, this altruistic <coughs> notion. Also, uh, I talk about autopoiesis auto po- and the autopoetic systems uh, in cybernetics and these principles of unity, circularity, self-creation, and self-regulation that we also see reflected in existentialism. Now, that philosophy highlights our ability, uh, as I mentioned before, to continually reinvent and recreate ourselves. So adaptation, evolution of the self and of systems and entities and organism, again, central to both fields. So, too, is autonomy, um, which is also commonly considered a, if not the, defining ingredient of artistic originality. And so we know autonomy through self-sustainability uh, It's fundamental to cybernetic systems, including the human body, but it's also central to existentialism's advocacy of freedom, self-determination. And also, I think it's reflected in a wider cultural context today. There's an increasing contemporary focus on issues of the self and and identity and these you know become prevalent in discourses academic and social uh, through social media and so on uh so connectivity interactivity uh, are uniting things you know that we find there are m- far more commonalities than differences i i, I mean I, I think when you when you come out with a discourse and argument you see everything only from your perspective and i understand that as a, re- as, a as a researcher that everything seems to sort of that uh, to, to come into place, there is an empirical fit, but it, but I think it is striking, and I you know I I, I think it's con- convincing when you start to, to you know to look at these things overall. I mean, it's also about responsibilities to others, with the the uh, uh, the being for others and so on. And cyberneticists such as Gregory Bateson, who I talk about a lot and whose work I love, he conceived ambitious, globally holistic, and ecological systems. Uh, and both fields are looking to break the old paradigms and expand new ones, yeah? Cybernetics regards disciplinarity as interdisciplinarity or anti-disciplinarity, that's Pickering. Uh, existentialism rejects the idea of a fixed psychological self, but rather subjectivity is always inter-subjectivity, yeah? So <clears throat> and then, just to conclude... Um, I present a chart demonstrating the similarities of the two epistemologies uh, with their specialist vocabulary and terms. Now, so, for example, I relate cybernetic homeostasis to existentialism's concept of equilibrium, okay? an equilibrium is something that was first described by Soren Kierkegaard, and this seeks to ensure... That uh, the exercising of human freedom, freedom again, doesn't become messianic, solipsistic, and is tempered also always by a sense of balance, responsibility, and ethics. This is equilibrium. Uh, in one case study, uh, I look at a theatre production by the Wooster Group, the great American uh, ensemble, the Wooster Group, their production of Hamlet. And in that, the live actors, uh, th- there's a projected film version of the play from 1964 this is Worcester Hamlet was about 10 years ago but uh, there was a 1964 film uh, of Richard Burton in in the play and they tried to, the the live actors try and synchronise their performances to it so that they're acting it out and and off stage technicians are scratching it to, they're scratching the film, you know, reversing and putting it forward so that to put the actors off and their their you know, it's it's like Keystone Cops. They're they're just trying to to synchronize their actions and their their selves to to the movie. <clears throat> now it's a really wonderful perfor- performance but because when they do synchronize, it's quite an amazing moment. And I discuss it in relation to Gregory Bateson's discussions of uh, somatic homeostasis and his idea of, uh, quote, the difference that makes a difference. Now, I note that when the live and screen performances, performers' actions truly align, this is the difference that makes a difference. And it prompts a coup de théâtre and a magical moment of cybernetic homeostasis. Now, at the same time, as Hamlet confronts his own nothingness and experiences drama's most famous existentialist existential crisis to be or not to be, his splitting mind is also brought visually into a moment of harmonious and existential equilibrium. So that's how I'm relating uh, those two together. Uh, other examples include cybernetic feedback loops, and I relate this to what we are talking about uh, earlier, the concept of being for others, this feedback loop, and, and, and being for others, and, and being fully in interaction. Um, <clears throat> so uh, cybernetic circularity, I equate with Nietzsche and Camus' ideas of eternal recurrence, and this is where, in an absurd world, they say we continually repeat the same actions and mistakes. Other examples uh, include comparisons between uh, autonomous or organisms in cybernetics and existentialist ideas of authentic action, uh, equa- uh, uh, and equations between autopoiesis and self- creation, identity self- creation, emergence and becoming, synthesis uh, in cybernetics and freedom uh, as the kind of the ultimate goals of both movements. And revelations associated with negative entropy, as a, uh, uh, as compared with those asa- associated with what I talked earlier about the existentials, meditation on our personal being towards death. So that negative entropy, um, you know, bringing us back to kind of reality and to clarity, is also done through thinking about one's, one's own, own death and saying, "Okay, wake up and sm- smell the coffee. I'm going to be a better person." So, <clears throat> I'm, therefore. Through that, through that charting, uh, I, th- I think <laughs> I show that really, going back to the religious analogy, they, they are separate churches, but they preach similar religions. And <laughs> both were fond of analogy as well. Cyberneticists, I think, brought existentialist concepts into science. And the existentialists essentially evolved a proto-cybernetic philosophy, And I kind of conclude by talking about change. You know, cybernetics is the science of change. Existentialism is the philosophy of change. And a common element that I found in all the exemplar artworks that I discuss is that they explore or encapsulate the aesthetics of change. And I think the aesthetics of change is something that is now becoming preeminent in contemporary art. Now, Gregory Bateson argued that the essence of cybernetics isn't about exchanging information across lines of discipline, but in discovering patterns common to many disciplines. Now, this has been a central philosophy that I've adopted and applied in the book. I seek the common patterns and affinities across the disciplines, not only of cybernetics and existentialism, but bringing that together, all of the patterns with contemporary arts.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this uh, this incredible uh, whirlwind tour of the book, and it is it is a. really fascinating book that really, really caught my attention and gave me lots to think about, even as an artist uh, who has been blending cybernetics with my own artistic practice for a number of years now. Uh, It just opened up whole new worlds and who like many 20 year olds uh, in undergraduate life, I went pretty deep into the existentialists uh, and your reminder that they're not quite as passe as we might want to think they are. I never thought they were, but of course it became very uncool to admit you still thought there was something, something about the existentialist that was worth holding on to I'm Let's much make less it ash- cool again Tom. Yeah, listen cool I'm again. with you Steve I am much <laughs> less ashamed after reading your book to say no there's something still in here and it's incredible the stuff about the uncanny um mm-hmm. and I know we got to wrap up here but the stuff about the uncanny uh, and being for others and crossing the uncanny valley mm-hmm. and finding the stranger in yourself I recently went through a situation at at work where I had to make a decision that was Turned out to be really unpopular and made a lot of people really upset. And I just finished reading that chapter, and when I saw myself for others as the object who had made this decision, uh, and sort of had to see myself through the other's eyes in that moment, it was profound. And the language in your book, bringing together cybernetics and existentialism, to talk about the uncanny valley and 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 meeting the stranger within yourself. Just resonated and helped ground me actually in this quite difficult moment. So I was, uh, you know, I didn't any, didn't need any re inspiration to believe that cybernetics is still relevant. Or I would be, it would be pretty odd for me to be hosting this podcast. But the re, <laughs> the reinvigoration of uh, what existentialism still might be able to tell us uh, and help us uh, navigate in the cybernetic, uh, at the ultimate cybernetic uh, metaphor to navigate. Um, our autonomous uh, behavior inside all of the mutual interdependencies of our world it's still got much to tell us so thank you so much for taking the time thank you so much for the book for the time and for your deep preparation to be able to, to give us such a rich uh, a picture of the book uh, and I'm sure there will be many uh, inspired to go and pick it up thanks very much Steve for joining us
0: my great pleasure uh, it's been a, a real delight thanks a lot Tom
1: thank you <laughs>